When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, Amber here, producer of Audio Book Club and resident audio bookworm. I'm just here to let you know that this episode contains references to strong language, mature themes and sensitive topics that some listeners may find triggering. If you find yourself in need of help, we provided some support groups that you can reach out to in the show notes. Welcome to Audio Book Club. I'm your host, Imriel Morgan, the founder of Content is Queen. Audio Book Club is a monthly event and podcast where we celebrate and discuss Black, Asian, queer and female narratives in literature. Every month we meet with other audiobookworms to discuss an audiobook recommended by you. But, and it's a big one, you can still attend the live event even if you've read and not listened to the book. We'll share our live discussion in every episode, followed by an interview and Q&A with a featured guest. If we're lucky, we'll have the author, but expect to hear from voice actors, directors, editors, and book critics too. Join us for our next live event and taping on Sunday, the 25th of April at 4pm UK time, where we'll be getting stuck into Love in Colour by Bolu Babalola. You can register to attend at contentisqueen.org forward slash ABC5. And that's the number five not written out. The link is also in the show notes. If you can't make it, feel free to send your thoughts and even your questions to us on WhatsApp on plus four four double seven one five four zero double eight three one. That's plus four four double seven one five four zero double eight three one. Also available in the show notes. Oh, and apologies in advance, but you'll have to expect some spoilers. This week, we're discussing Through the Leopard's Gaze by Jambi McGrath. Through the Leopard's Gaze is an incredible memoir chronicling the award-winning comedian's difficult but inspiring life growing up in Kenya. This book covers family abuse, racism, identity and emotional triumph, as well as giving us an amazing foundation in the history of Kenya. In the book, Jambi details the harrowing circumstances of her life as a young girl in Kenya, who on one fateful night was beaten to a pulp and left for dead. She buries the memories of that fateful day and night and years later ends up in London with a British husband and children. Then one day, a simple, unassuming wedding invitation arrives in her mailbox causing her to confront the remnants of a past she had thought she had left behind. The book is about survival and courage when all else fails. It is a searingly honest examination of human cruelty and strength in equal measure. Here's what's coming up. Heartbreaking stories. The line where they talk about him being born and being found suckling his dead mother's breast, I thought, boy, you're set up to just not have a great life. And you just think of this baby and you're growing up in a space where no one's looking out for you surprising historical references it gave me 
an understanding of third person experience in relation to colonization and the impact on people to hear a black woman talk about her pain because often we repress it because it's a key part of what happened to a lot of women as part of colonization and the impact of colonization we don't talk about it moments that left us speechless my grandmother for all of her life she was in forced labor so when the british arrived in kenya they forced women and girls to do useless work, digging roads, digging trenches, so that my grandmother was unable to completely look after her children and they were never paid, so they used force. My mother just speaking about her childhood being one of complete and utter hunger. All this and so much more. Let's get into it. First up, let's meet this week's audio bookworms. My name is Sandra and I work in a college. I'm a teacher, but I call myself an educator. My name's Anita. I am founder of a community radio station in Bedfordshire. Hiya, I'm Amber and I'm one of the co-producers of Audio Book Club. I'm Priscilla. I'm a writer and a book reviewer. I have my own blog called justreadit.co.uk and I'm also a literature contributor to the British Blacklist. I'm Shaz, I'm from the West Midlands. I'm a community activist and I'm involved with a number of projects. Hi, I'm Nikki. I work in publishing as talent and audience development for Cassava Republic Press. And I guess I just read a considerable amount. <laughs> Brilliant. Thanks everyone for being here. So we're going to kick the discussion off as we always do, which is your first impressions of the book. I think when I first started through The Leopard's Gaze, I wasn't sold because I just thought, okay, why am I having to read so much trauma in, you know, the first few chapters? It's very heavy and intense. And for a while, I couldn't understand the journey this narrative was going to go on. You know, what was the resolution? What was the purpose of writing this? And then because it's divided into two sections, the second section really does that uncovering for you. But... I think reading about someone's lived experience and having it be so layered with familial betrayal, you just think, oh my God, this is someone's real life. And it was overwhelming. And I think I was very angry for Jambi. I was just very angry and just thought, why? Like, what? what's going on? So yeah, that was a very intense early read. And the second half sort of, it brought me back and gave me understanding of why the story is being told. And it's also repositioned a lot of characters in my mind which I think is one of the beauties of having a story like this being told to make you understand you know the idea of who quote-unquote the monster is and how you know monsters are created and where do we place blame and things of that nature so yes it's just really fantastic. At what point do these parents go from loving their babies to being their abusers? When does the love become frustration, impatience and violence? I wondered what expectations those parents had for their children. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I definitely agree <laughs> with you. My first impressions were that I didn't like it because I just found it really slow and I just could not connect where this was going. I didn't really understand. It just felt like a lot of different stories being pieced together. And then it got increasingly traumatic as you went on. And so I just found it really, really difficult. But there was this turning point where she's describing her first inappropriate touching encounter that it started to turn for me there where I was just like, whoa, okay, this is something I really need to pay attention to. This is someone's hurt kind of bleeding out onto the page. And so 
somehow, some way, I started to connect more and really listen and started to find that I not only enjoyed the book, not in like a sadistic way, but I started to really want to get to the bottom of what was happening. Priscilla, you look like you're about to speak. I was going to say, I agree with both of you. I thought it was beautifully written. I was quite struck by the language and just her turn of phrase. But again, it was just page after page of trauma and you're just like, um, hmm. And how do I deal with this? And I should point out that I started reading it last year at the start of lockdown and just going for a bereavement myself. So probably not the best book to read. But I felt as well, like you, it was just like, where is this going? Because it just feels like you're literally bleeding on this page. And then there was a turning point for me whereby the sister started acting up. And I was like, oh, okay, so this is interesting. What's going on here? And then the last part of the section of the book when she talks about her mother and her grandmother's histories and what happened to them in their past that was really interesting to me and I think at the end what I felt was just that the structure of the book was just really quite disjointed so mm. it really made it quite difficult to get into so the beginning you're a bit like okay and then you get lots and lots of trauma and then you get a kind of explanation of said trauma and this could have been done a lot better <laughs> but then it, like you say it is somebody's lived experience and I think that was what this kept coming back to me every time I was like I don't think I want to read this anymore that like, no this is someone's lived experience this isn't someone trying to write a dramatic story they've actually been through this and so I think I was let down by the way it was edited and maybe put together mm. rather than the writing itself or the story itself yeah thank you I mean I agree with what's been said I I found it really hard to begin with I didn't quite understand it and I suppose the beauty of doing the audio book club was I had to finish it um <laughs> because there's no point yeah. me turning up if I didn't so I gave it a go whereas I suppose normally I wouldn't have done I would have returned it what I took from it in the end it gave me an understanding of third person experience in relation to colonization and the impact on people and also because I'm Caribbean sometimes that discussion has very much a Caribbean perspective whereas this was just a Kenyan, um, if that makes sense. So it educated me. Also, it was refreshing to hear a black woman talk about her pain because often we repress it. So for me, that was quite refreshing, not in a sadistic way, but these are stories that are there when we do, as sometimes as a community, suppress them and we don't like to talk about them because it's a key part of what happened to a lot of women as part of colonisation and the impact of colonisation. And we don't talk about it, even though it's actually, it affects us a lot as women. There's only one way of improving the wakikuyu, and that is to wipe them out. I should be so delighted to do so. Francis Hall, Imperial British East Africa Company. The weary women were still sleeping on the dew-laden grass when the district officer walked in through the gates accompanied by Johnnies and home guards. The children's lethargic whimpers were barely audible too hungry to cry as mothers cocooned their infants in their chests, wrapped in filthy rugs in their desperation to keep warm. It had been several days since they had been brought into this field, kept like cargo and left in limbo. They were dirty and unkempt, with no provision for personal hygiene. Menstruating women just reached through the barbed wire for leaves, which they also used as toilet paper. The district officer spoke in broken Swahili. No one was returning to their village. From then on, they were to remain on the field, the officer explained. That patch of ground was to be their new home, 
and it was up to the women to construct the houses. All huts were to be in neat straight rows, with all the doors facing the watchtower, from which the guard on duty had a perfect bird's eye view of every woman, and every woman would have a perfect view of the evil that hounded them. They had no building tools, and after their allocation, Shoshuherina pleaded to be able to walk back to their old home in Igancho to salvage anything she could. It was a miracle that their old home had not burned to the ground as most did. Shoshuherina was instructed to start demolishing her old hut, destroying her home and freedom. It took her two days to dismantle it, helped by Maito and her sisters. They gathered all the posts, sticks, and grass, all tied up with ropes on their backs, making several trips to rebuild their new home. I do want to jump in on Priscilla's statement about the structure of the memoir because I think the structure really works because it's a reminder of what trauma does to memory and how memory doesn't remain linear and how you remember things is very jagged and it's fragmented. And I think the structure, while choppy, is part of the story itself because it's part of understanding how there's so much lost and forgotten and she's having to pull memory at different points to pull the story together. And that's because of what's happened to her, but also as part of the lost histories, you know, there's so many gaps that are not filled in and that's the journey of this novel. So I think part of the struggle of reading this book was not just the trauma, but the structure, but that also relates to the trauma. And so I think by the end, I appreciated, you know, the narrative style and the way that the book was laid out because I thought, okay, I understand what's being told here. And that came full circle for me. But by the end, I thought, okay, this makes sense in the context of what we're talking about. Yeah, that's actually a really good point, actually. I wouldn't have yeah, thought to look at it like that. Priscilla, do you want to weigh in? Yeah, I think that's a fair point because even like coming back to it in preparation for today, I was still kind of struggling with that question because in some ways it did work for me. In other ways, it just didn't. And I think originally when I reviewed the book, I just said that, you know, I was wondering whether it was just underserved by the way it was edited and constructed. And I still feel the same way because I still feel it could have been done better. But I do take that point, absolutely. As a reader, yes, you're reading, you know, someone's lived experience, someone's pain, and you're aware of how awful it all is. At the same time, you can't help but to ask yourself, where are we going with this? Especially when you're kind of being built up in a way to expect something and then you get to it and you're like, that wasn't really it. There was something about it that just felt quite off to me and it slightly missed them up, but I can't say it was a bad book and I can't say it was bad writing because it just wasn't. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's just a fair point, right? Reading and listening, I still felt like this was just loads of different stories. And actually, in the words of colour, review and summary by Barbara Grant, and she described it as each chapter being a short story. And that helped me recontextualise it a little bit because I was like, that makes sense. If I had read that first, maybe I would have gone into it slightly differently and expected it to just operate as these kind of short stories that build up a bigger picture and speak to an overarching history of childhood trauma and colonialism and the impact and all of the other themes and layers that we will definitely touch on and get into. But yeah, I think you're right. It's not bad, but it does make it very difficult, at least in the very beginning, to kind of get an understanding of what's going on. Sandra and Amber, do you want to share your first impressions? What struck me at first was just the violence, those first pages. But perhaps because I had already 
heard Njambi talking about the story and uh, how it had been done and the whole process, maybe that made it easier for me. So I read the book in four days and, uh-huh. you know, I just couldn't stop it. It's the kind of book that I got it. And I said, no, I need, I need to know how it's going to get to the end, to the part where she talks about colonialism and uh, those difficulties and everything that we know. So to me, it was quite easy, actually, to start and finish because I didn't have all these barriers that perhaps you all had because you didn't have a preview of the story. Oh, I loved it. I loved it. It, It's become one of my favorite books. (laughs) And it has a lot also to do, you know, talking about her father and family. So yes, I really, really enjoyed it. Brilliant. Thank you so much for sharing that. It's lovely to have that perspective on here as well. So it did take me a while to get into it as it is harrowing, as everyone said. And especially when you think about it, it, this is a autobiographical in that sense but I thought it was a great education for me because I got to hear more about colonialism and stuff like that because it's not in our curriculum at school which I think is mentioned in the book so it was great to be able to learn about the history and what I also enjoyed when we go to the part two and three where she goes in deeper with her family and finds out all about her grandmother and the life of her and her mother I thought it was great to hear all these really strong women that were in this story, whether that be her mother and her grandma and like the independence they had, how she raised them as a single mother. But also we have the villainous character of the stepmother. And I thought it was great that it was mainly focused around these women rather than it all being just men's the baddies and all these bits. And we also have like her sister, which was, I thought, crazy. Is she ill? <laughs> What's going on there? Which I thought it was great to hear all these different encounters with these women. Yes, thank you. That really beautifully moves us on into characters. Were there any standout characters for you all? The sister, of course. <laughs> to me, <laughs> I have so many questions about the sister. So that's the part of the book that I think it needed to expand a bit more. And actually, in my brain, I'm waiting for that book to come along, you know, just <laughs> just about the sister, because what she did was, uh, I mean, just unbelievable. It's a horror. And I think apart from anything else, that was just so, so bad. And uh, there is not much. That's it. So that happened. And what happened to her from that action? What were the consequences to herself? If anyone could explain to me. <laughs> I mean... Koi's character really mm. was quite something. I've never encountered a character quite Absolutely, quite like yes. it. And that's yes. based on a real person. Our family would have been perfect if Koi had not been the malignant tumour that lay dormant in the family abdomen, spewing her cancerous pathogens, infecting each one of us in its wake, propelling our demise. She was a tumour whose pronged tentacles wrapped themselves tightly around our throats like a hangman's noose, squeezing the airways until we could hardly breathe. We would still have been together if she'd kept her mouth shut. Our family would have been perfect, living in our pink pebble-dashed house on top of the ridge in the Garden of Eden in the central province of Kenya. It was quite for me. Did she do all of that just to get attention? And then at which point did she ever think to herself that she was going too far? And it was just her motivations for it. It just seems so outrageous. And just kind of flicking through those chapters again, I was thinking, is she still alive? Is she in contact with anybody? How is she living? <laughs> it was just astonishing that she could take something so far. Because initially it just felt like kind of a childish, I'm just going to be 10 to be sick so that everyone would rally around me. But then it just went so far. And I was like, wow, okay. 
Mm. Unbelievable. <laughs> she was unbelievable. There's no mention of her in the wedding either. That's what I think adds even more eyebrows. It's like, but yeah, what happened very... to her? Where is she? Did she die? What happened to this girl? Nikki, you were going to make a point. I'll pass it the fact that obviously this memoir is written from a singular perspective. So as much as we're like, I want to know what's going on in her head. Like, is she crazy? Is she what? Like, because the questions were not asked. And even if the questions were asked, how much would it really reveal of that character's motives or this person's motives? And it's, I think it's one of the frustrations about autobiographical narratives and memoirs because you're like, well, you started talking about that person and I need to know more, but the author is biased because they have a journey they're taking, but also you cannot know what's going on in someone else's head, even when they tell you what's going on, which I think is very complex. I think also for Jambi's mother, sometimes I was like, you gave me your historical context. I never got your mental, I want to know what's going on in your head at certain times, particularly the wedding where the mm. stepmother stands up for her son. You know, there are moments where I'm like, I want to actually break open your skull because what is going on in there? I want to know how you're sitting and taking things and taking things and and you're surviving them. So I need more and, and I know I'm not going to get it. So I'm so frustrated. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. I think it's also interesting because this is like a memory from her childhood as well. So how much validity there is within those memories and if anything's been exaggerated. Because when you're a child and you think back to things, as a kid you describe like a puppy as like a lion. So things could be exaggerated. No, I actually completely understand you because I thought that as well. When she first described her sister as a cancer, I was like, wow, okay, that's harsh. It really hit me in the chest like, okay, but... Are we sure? Because you're quite young. We get the impression that she's very, very young remembering these actions. So obviously things feel very magical and fantastical and can be quite big. So I think, yeah, I definitely held in the back of my mind that maybe Koi was definitely intriguing in so many ways. But she was neglected in a hospital for weeks on end and her dad never saw her. I was like, is this real life? Do people do this? And I guess so, because we have nothing else to go on. But it was definitely something that made me think... Was it a few weeks or was it a couple days? How does memory work when there's so much trauma and so much packed on top and burying that are we recalling things accurately? As we know it can be challenging in those cases. I also really want to find out the stepmom's name. The whole place was awash with melancholy. Every time I saw she whose name refuses to leave my mouth walk out of the bedroom that Vava and Maito used to share, I felt my body transpose into a ghostly form which would lift me from the ground. I would feel my hands circle round her throat, slowly throttling the life out of her until she collapsed on the floor. It was only when she slammed the door shut that I would emerge from my reverie. I despised everything about her, even the air she breathed out of her nose. I could sense it long after she left. Her legs were fat, fat all the way from her ankles, leading to her ass, which was too flat for an African woman. At the front, the most prominent feature was her nose. It was a big, fat, long nose, which looked like Pinocchio's after he told too many lies. I'm almost certain the reason her nose was so long was because of the lie she told. I was like, who's this woman and how can we go into Jambi's childhood and fight her for her? Because I think it's having your mother leave and then the replacement is completely different, mm. where even though the home when the father was present was tough, around their mother there was warmth and there was adventure and there was imagination and the replacement takes all of that away from you and I think she was never the one metting out sort of the physical in that same way but she championed it but also she took away imagination from children and I think that is very traumatic we think about 
the ways we have conversations about children and what they need now today. And because there's a recognition that these things are important to development, these things are important to feelings of safety, these things are important to just raising a child. So while she wasn't always a physical entity of violence, she was emotionally very damaging. But at the same time, she was really young. She was close enough in age and her sister. So it's sort of where you're supposed to represent a sisterly figure for me you're completely not doing that also. As I like, there's so many layers to the trauma going on here. You know, it's the motherhood, it's the sister, it's the femalehood, because her experience of female bonding has been her grandmother, her mother, her sisters, and there'd been a standard set for what female relationship looked like. And the stepmother essentially ruptures this and breaks this apart. So it's a very layered trauma. And then you get to the wedding and she's grown up. She's taller, but she's not grown up. She's not better. She's not soft she's not warm she's not she's not anything you expect um, from someone who's had experience so oh no I found her to be quite quite awful oh I don't need to know her name I'm okay (laughs) (laughs) and I think it's also the lack of naming her is maybe in Jambi's way of ensuring she's not written into her history Mm. where it's important sometimes to name there's some people you also want to erase from history and I think this was probably a very deliberate erasing you from my history by not naming you I'm not memorializing you in my memoir essentially I feel like I definitely want to ask Jambi if that was her intention now because it definitely felt like there was a very visceral hatred of this person but I feel like her father put this woman in place Mm. and really made her like I've chased your mother out the house with an axe here's your new mother and he expected the children particularly the girls to respect this woman in the same way as they would have respected and loved their mother and that was too much for them to take to the point where why did he like try to report them to the police yes and the police officer is kind of like uh, what would you expect mate <laughs> like seriously yeah. <laughs> a police officer's like why are you wasting my time with this <laughs> this this is ridiculous I mean on the face of it it does seem overly dramatic to be like she whose name will never leave my mouth but I quite enjoyed the drama of that mm. because it just spoke to the fact that I really do not like this person I don't respect her and she doesn't even merit being named in my opinion certainly not in this book where I'm talking about my history and on the face of it, it just seems like everybody else, her father, her sister, did so much worse than this stepmother. But then you don't know. It seems to me the stepmother was also quite happy to instigate things and to whisper things and to suggest things, which led on to bigger and greater horribleness that followed. So mm. I actually kind of respected the refusal to name her. And I think she cast the stepmother as I wrote down the perfect villain especially with somebody mentioned about like that fairy tale aspect of the wicked stepmother and it was perfectly cast in that way but I don't think it was done without good reason. Yeah that's a really good point. I did want to get into some of the themes. So we've talked about the violence and trauma and we've managed to do that with minimal reference to her father actually so far which has been the main instigator of not only madness but violence and he is arguably one of the worst people I have read about. How are you feeling? She asked me, holding my hand. He said if I go back, you will kill me. I lied, worried Maito would send me back. Oh, you will never go back, my child. Not if I'm alive. He's an animal. I will sooner sell my body than have you go back to that wretched house. I closed my eyes at Maito's comforting words. Memories of that night still vivid. What kind of a man does this to his child? Maito shouted angrily. He's not a human. She stopped cursing when I opened my eyes and began to recount the events of the night that would define who I became. The night I lost my childhood. 
this book reminds me a lot of Constance Briscoe's Ugly. So it's quite different, but they're very like horrible stories of people being violent against their children, parents in particular. But the father, I think because it was so relentless at some point, I found, I don't don't know if this is true for anyone else, but I started to find I was getting a little bit desensitized to some of his actions. And I, I don't think this is any fault of Jambi. I just think he was just constant. It just did not let up. Like, this man is awful and he is not going to let you live. He is not going to let you breathe. He is not going to let you experience joy. And I was just like, okay, well, I just know what's coming. Every time he steps in, every time that car is rumbling on the gravel outside, like, I know what time it is. It's trauma time. And I felt like I was almost empathizing with them of like, okay, hold your breath. Something's going to go down. We know it. I then experienced a very profound turning point where it was I think after the watch broke and her and her younger brother get beaten with this stick and she's describing him as his furrowed brow being like devil horns and the stick is just covered in red and I was just like okay I'm gonna have to take a break this is it's too much like it always felt like it was too much but there was something just so deeply evil in that description that I just it hit me a little bit differently that time but what were your takeaways from this did you find it was relentless at some stages I found it just quite hard on a personal level to absorb it I, I don't know how I emotionally felt when she talked about how her mum and dad first got together if you know what I mean mm. I've never heard of that before you know it, it, things like that it's like oh so it's not the type of book I would traditionally read and because it was real it was an eye-opener I do know these things happen I just don't traditionally read books like that reading that for me was really challenging because it opened my mind up to why would that lead on to anything else there's a lot of worrying going on yeah (laughs) that is fair enough it is very unexpected for sure Priscilla, any thoughts from you? I think you're right. There was moments whereby because it was so much and it's like you just knew that this man is just obviously very unstable and you don't know what's going to set him off. So anytime he is appears or is about to come into scene, as it were, you're just on guard, ready for whatever it is he's going to drop. And it was just hard going and I just don't know how they survived in that environment and I know what you mean by feeling desensitized and I wonder if it was the same for them in a sense you're so used to this violence you're so used to this horror and even though you want it to stop it's what you're used to so you find ways to cope and to prepare yourself for whatever's going to happen and I think as a reader you're doing almost doing the same thing it's like you know okay he's coming home something's going to go down and so you ready yourself and so if that was bad for us as readers or listeners how much worse was it for Jambi and her siblings it was just horrific and I think even coming to the final part of the book where you find out more about his past and his history and what was likely the triggers that caused him to be the man that he was And I was kind of thinking, is it an explanation or justification? I'm not quite sure. Mm. And are we now supposed to feel for him? Because I don't think I do. Yeah, me neither. (laughs) (laughs) And how does Jambi feel about him? He died before she had a chance to really confront him. And it's what, I think his death is what triggered her to do some research into her family history and stuff anyway. It was a lot to process in terms of like the relationship with the dad, because on some levels he seems, he had a few good years of where he was like, you know, really good husband and father. And then it was just interspersed with these moments of madness, which just continued 
I still don't really get where that switch was to him becoming the abusive, horrendous husband that he was. I know that he had a really traumatic childhood and there was lots of triggers that you touched upon. And I know that it was problematic for the relationship of the mum and the dad to begin with. But there did seem some happiness at the start. And then I just want to, I just, I just don't understand where that suddenly that trigger was for all this to start. I know that it was mentioned that he wanted a better life and wanted to live a luxurious lifestyle, but how did that then trigger this really abusive relationship towards the mum and it all just spiralling? Yeah, I suppose that's the downside of a memoir, isn't it? Mm. It's like Nikki said earlier, you're limited by what the author's perspective and experiences are and then what they're able to then find out after the fact. So we will never know because she didn't know. I remember like there was a moment where she was describing he finally got the farm, but, you know colonialism, racism, white supremacy just said, no, you you can't make the money that you thought you were going to make from this business. And that being a turning point in their relationship. And then Koi's illness made him re-engage with the family after he had started to distance himself from it. But then that quickly changed as well. So it was all of these little, I suppose, if this really is like a case of a mental health issue, which I don't know what else it could be, I suppose that's just showing like decline doesn't happen in one big snap. It's loads of small things that build up to someone's mental decline, like we saw with Queenie, which was just loads of small things, eventual collapse. I think I slightly disagree about the not knowing, because I think you say it in wrong terms of understanding that despite having this land and this farm, his life still belongs to whiteness. So I think the violence has always been in him because that's how marriage started. It started, you know, with essentially assault. But the idea of owning his life, I think, was a transformative, or it gave him space to think, okay, maybe there's transformation. And then coming back to realising that actually your life's still owned by whiteness, I think that was a big trigger. He essentially reverted and lived his life as though there was no law, there was no structure, there was no land, there was no family. So I don't know that I want any further explanation than whiteness is the issue here. And I'm not saying, you know, he had to have, because one of the things this biography shows us is that there's different gendered responses to trauma, because mother, grandmother grew up in the same conditions, right, as father, But their response to that traumatic space, their response to growing up in these concentration camps, essentially, is to try and grow with love, rise above it, try and live their lives on their terms, where the father isn't able to. And I think this is why, at the end, we're all very confused as to how do I feel about this? Do I say, oh, he's this way because of colonialism, when we have different examples of responses in the female characters? But at the same time, it's you have to ask the question, do I judge someone's response to trauma? Because what right do I have to judge his response to trauma? And that's the complexity of humanity. I can hate someone but have compassion for them, which is something I never thought I'd say at the end of this book. But I thought, oh, I really hate you, but I have compassion for you. And these two emotions can live side by side. So uh, yeah, he's very complex. But I think his life going back to whiteness, I think was just a big crash point for him. I think that makes sense, Nikki. You start to see his decline or his instability increase and increase and increase. I recently read Alice Walker's The Third Life of Grange Copeland, and it made me think a lot about African-American literature written during Jim Crow and actually what lots of African-American women would describe as being violently abused by their husbands because they were acting out white supremacy on the person that was below them. So it's like a very common thing that you have no power, so you exert power where you can. 
And I thought there was like some mirroring in that kind of experience, that colonialism and slavery, which naturally are different, but very similar things in different contexts, that women still, and black women in particular, are still the victims of this really horrific and sometimes worse violence than the white man at the hands of a black man. And I thought that was just like a really interesting juxtaposition for me where I was like, oh, okay, this is helping me understand this very colonial context. Like you said, Anita, in the beginning, I'm from the Caribbean. I know what slavery did. (laughs) And I know how colonial rule kind of impacted my family on islands to a certain extent. But it's quite interesting to see it and how it manifested on the continent, which to this day still has repercussions, as we know. And yeah, it was an education for me. And it also just helped me actually feel closer to the diaspora in so many ways and closer to the continent. Because I was like, actually, we have so much more in common that we do not know. And it's just through stories like this that we are able to actually bridge these gaps and unfortunately bridge through trauma, but also just having an understanding. But Nikki, I don't know if I could get to compassion, love. that. That's an evolution that I'm not ready for, unfortunately. <laughs> I, I hated him. I wanted him dead from the start. I thought, yes, they're free. Let them be free of this evil. No, the line where they talk about him being born and being found suckling his dead mother's breast, I thought, boy, you're set up to just not have a great life. And you just think of this baby and you're growing up in a space where no one's looking out for you. Fava was born at the most unfortunate of times, during the mass starvation referred to as the cassava famine amongst the Kekoyo. Europe was ravaged by the Second World War, with all food denied to the Kekoyo to help the British with their food rations. Fava was found as a baby, circling furiously on his dead mother, frail and weakened by hunger. She had been out in the forest collecting firewood when she collapsed and died. Her baby son was still in the sling when he was found by passers-by. After Wairimo's death, Her children became destitute, condemned to scavenging in bins and sewers. Fava's survival was nothing short of miraculous. On numerous occasions, his aunt, Nyambura, tried to rescue them, but she was destitute and near death herself. It was then she decided to drown Fava and his older sister, Kashambi. Life was so hard that she considered it kinder to drown them in Onderi, the revered swamps. It was the way most people went when life got too difficult. And he also had that broken maternal link. And I don't buy, you know, this idea that you get your lineage through your father's name because it's only the mother that knows who the father of her child is. Your mother's your strongest root. So, you know, he has that broken maternal link. And we see the contrast of his wife, who, because her maternal links are so strong, she's able to have that survival. Mm. I think the grounding of the maternal, because, again, I think it is because the mother carries the child, you grow within the maternal womb. That is where your grounding is. And I think losing that is very destructive, particularly for the male child. I do want to add also that the father, his only understanding of how wealth and power manifest was through violence, because his only view of power and wealth manifesting was through the colonial lens. So maybe he was just enacting what he thought power looked like. Sandra, what about you? I have to say I agree with Nikki a bit because I started by hating the father as well. And by the end of the story and throughout the story, just I started to understand, well, do not think that that's correct behavior, but it's through all the trauma. And like I said, I always read autobiographies and there is so much violence in so many families and in so many different places and countries. And I've started to read, I said, I'm going to get the 54 countries in Africa and read a book from each author. And uh, yes, because of uh, colonialism and it's been there 
you know, I'm from Brazil, so I'm a bit far from the Caribbean and the continent of Africa in itself. So the story of the father is just a horror story. And I think that during the period in what he was, the farm was not doing well. That was a long period, according to the book. It was many years of that. Mm. And I think that especially for a man who wants to bring up his family and you want to make sure that everybody has everything. And he just couldn't. And, uh, you know, from what I saw, he was trying so hard. I was like, oh my gosh, why I could, can't someone just help him? Because he was trying so hard from the, the description, going here, there and everywhere. And uh, he tried, he did try, he tried his best, but this is it, to colonialism. And uh, it wasn't possible. And that was the only rule he knew in his life. You have to be bad. Yes, if you're bad, you achieve. Mm. If you're nice, you don't. So this is it. So it's only the negative points were the ones that would get somewhere or somehow. And I think in the end, this is to me, this is when it clicked. And then he just decided, that's it. I've had enough. So I'm just going to follow you know, what I know and what I've seen, what I have experienced. So I think it's just a sad, sad story. I felt sorry for him because when you start to get into what exactly was done to them, and like Nikki said, from his childhood, oh, it's it's devastating, absolutely devastating. Yeah, it does become a self-fulfilling prophecy, like you say, of violence begets violence, because if you see it working, then what yeah. what is there to stop you mm-hmm. and doing the right thing? And when he was doing the right things, being a good family man, arguably, there was no reward. Hey, how are you finding Audio Book Club so far? Do you think you want to get in on the action? Join us for our next live event and taping on Sunday, the 25th of April at 4pm British Summertime, where we'll be sharing our thoughts on Love in Colour by Bolu Babalola. Or send us your thoughts, questions and suggestions on WhatsApp via plus 44771540831. If you're enjoying this podcast, make sure you follow and leave a review and share it with a friend because it helps us grow and we love to spread the word. If you love audiobooks and can never decide what to listen to next, check out the You Heard It Here First podcast, where you'll get honest reviews of audiobooks, podcasts and dramas available on Audible. You can follow the podcast today on your favourite podcast player. Now, I'd love to welcome comedian and author Jambi McGrath. Hi Jambi, it's an honour to have you here, honestly. Could you start off by introducing yourself to us? Hi everyone, my name is Jambi McGrath and I'm the author of Through the Leopard's Gaze. Thank you for writing the book and giving us something to talk about today because it could not have been an easy thing to bring up and discuss. Hi Jambi, so I think this is such an important read, particularly as a Nigerian West African person reading this story because I think a lot of times, you know, West Africans, we can get into our little bubble and we spend yeah. too much time there. So it was important that I read this story and understood the way that colonization manifested in a different space and the impact of that, you know, on the personal and not just as theoretic or text, but the personal levels. And I, I have said in the discussion that at the end, I both sort of hated your father character, but had compassion for him. And it's interesting to balance both things in terms of this idea of what monsters create monsters. And I know that's probably like the word to use, but the layers through which, you know, people are created and how we can hold a person to account for who they become, but also 
give them space for humanity now that was a personal journey I went on I feel like Emerald's definitely just like no <laughs> not on that but I really definitely felt like this was an important story to read so thank you so much for excavating your past to tell this story because like that must have been just such a tough journey to pull this together thank you so much you know when you sit down to write you're not even thinking about the other side you're not thinking about how it will touch people on the other side and it is so nice to actually get feedback because I'm also a comedian when you're a comedian and you're on stage you get instant feedback so you know whether they like it or they don't like it <laughs> with a book people read and they just there's this fear so you never get to know what th- people thought or how they perceived it so for you to be here telling me how much you enjoyed reading my book means so much to me you can tell from reading is such a personal book for me a personal very very personal journey especially because my mom passed away a month before it was published and that was it was so hard for me but also very important because she had hung on for long enough to finish the book she so very much wanted to do it and that always gives me hope even when I feel sad and I miss her and everything I know that her name will never be forgotten now oh that's beautiful I'm so sorry for your loss Mm. oh god I might cry oh (laughs) because you get so close to all of the people in the book you've placed us in your life and it's such a privileged position to be in to have that intimacy and those feelings and that fear that you're feeling and you know And also, it's quite unimaginable, some of the things you experienced as well. Nita, you had your hand raised. Have you changed as a person? And have members of your family who have read the book, has it had an impact on them? Have I changed as a person? Yes. Because growing up in Kenya, a lot of people in Kenya, we don't know our history. So we are completely brainwashed. And I did a show called Accidental Coconut because that's kind of what we are. We are very brainwashed. So everything for me, white was the best because this is how we've been programmed. And so you can imagine the shock for me when I actually realized that the places my mother mentioned as a child were a concentration camp. And my husband being English, who is a very, very, very nice person, by the way, When I found all of that out, I found it really difficult to reconcile that these were the people that I absolutely loved and I respected, and they're the people that tortured my family. So I I found that really difficult emotionally to deal with. My sister helped counsel me and tell me that he wasn't involved. (laughs) You know, he wasn't there. It wasn't him. But I found it very, very difficult. And also just the fact that I always thought, and when you grow up in Africa, you actually think because colonialism is about brainwashing people to think that they are lesser than. So you always aspire to be white, to think like a white person, to act like a white person, to use cutlery like a white person. And so all of the buildup for me to be these people who are respectful of human rights, these people who are respectful of justice, these people who are respectful of law and order, these people who are respectful of everything that's good and wholesome. And then you find out they are the perpetrators of the most hideous, gruesome thing I could not reconcile. I found myself really, really difficult place. And I began to regret actually going into this. So that is still a journey that I'm learning to come to terms with, because it's just like believing in a system. And then you find out that system is rigged and is rigged against you. In Africa, they don't even do things about things like slave trade and stuff like that. So when I went to America, I was very surprised to see 
that anger in black people and I was like what's, what's what's up with you guys it's only when I started to really go through this journey I was like what seriously yeah I have changed as a person and to be honest with you my family they really haven't read the book <laughs> because this is a journey we have to undertake in our own time and I, I don't think they want to visit it <laughs> and that's fine because that was my own personal journey it felt important for me to do it and it's not something you can force someone to do to confront some of the things that they have been escaping from for years and suddenly to bring them to it. And I haven't pushed it with them because I know myself, I struggled with the truth. I found the truth too difficult to handle, but it was also necessary. I was driven by the need to tell the story of my mother, the need to tell the story of my grandmother. My grandmother, for all of her life, she was in forced labor. So when the British arrived in Kenya, they forced women and girls to do useless work, digging roads, digging trenches, so that my grandmother was unable to completely look after her children and they were never paid. So they used force. My grandmother lived in abject poverty, which I never really understood why she lived in abject poverty. And my mother just speaking about her childhood being one of complete and utter hunger. And I could not understand. I was like, why were you hungry? Every time I look around, I see mangoes on trees. I see things. Why couldn't you eat? And so just finally sitting down and understanding why they were not able to do any of that stuff and the violence that they were subjected to is difficult. So that was my driving factor. I wanted people to know just how strong these women are and were, and how, I don't think I covered much about the resistance, but they resisted, these women resisted. I think I covered a little bit about how they used to cover their faces with ash and stuff like that, because they didn't want to be seen as women. They're there humiliating them and doing all of this, and then ogling at them for being women. So they used to make themselves ugly by covering their faces with ash. And uh, they had this thing, if they were beaten, they would die smiling. And that has to be very disturbing for the soldiers as well that you're beating these people and they're actually dying, smiling. They're unbreakable. They had taken away everything, their dignity, their ability to live, their ability to look after their children. And all for what? And this is what I ask, all for what? Just so that Britain can maintain the supremacy, which it failed very drastically. So it's still very, as, as you can see, really difficult book for me to think about. Priscilla, should we go to your question? Thank you, Jambi. Just processing what you just said, I mean, it was really strong really beautiful really amazing and like I said before I thought the stories of your grandmother and your mother were the strongest part of the book for me and a kind of a revelation in the sense that I'm from West African Ghana mm-hmm. and I knew about colonialism but didn't know about it in the context of Kenya mm-hmm. so reading your story was really quite powerful and that part of the book was mm-hmm. really what sealed it for me mm-hmm. and I understand how you came to be researching about your mother and your grandmother's stories, but I did want to know, going back to the beginning of the book, what was it about that wedding invite that triggered you? Because it forced me to confront my past because I was going to be in a wedding with my father. I was going to be in a wedding with his wife and that completely just got to me but then also not attending the wedding for my brother and this is the thing though because when something happens to you as a group each one of you will process that thing very differently some people will run away some people will pretend it never happened some people will force themselves to be okay with it 
And so in a funny sort of way, I think my brother was the one that forced himself to be okay with it, despite what they did to him. And so for me, the love for my brother, just I could not contemplate not going to that wedding. But then it brought all these things that I ran away from so long ago. If you asked me before then, was I traumatized? I would have said, by what? <laughs> like, no, I knew what happened. I knew that day very well, but I didn't think I was traumatized. And this is the thing with especially childhood trauma. This is why it takes so long to come through because people are trying to walk away from it. You just move on, but you can't just move on. So that wedding is the first time I was really going to confront what happened. And for some strange reason, it completely threw me off balance. And I pushed people away from my life. It completely triggered me and then whetted my appetite to find out more about my dad. Because when we meet up in this place, he doesn't seem like, other than a look he gave me, just one look, our eyes locked for just a splitting second. And I thought that I saw maybe some sort of regret in his eyes. And then he was gone so quickly. But what I thought was he would say how sorry he was about what he had done to me, what he'd done to my mother, what he'd done to our family. And my aim was to just write about what a terrible man my father was. I wanted the world to know just how awful he was. He did something that was so awful to her that she had absolutely said no, 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 no. And then that's what he does. It's like I was just going back and back just to find out about my dad and him being an orphan, unloved, uncared for in a very brutal environment under colonialism where if you died, you died too bad. You know, nobody cares. And I could put myself in that position. At least I had my mother, even though with all of that, at least my mother was, I always knew she was always there. He had no one. And you know, when people are faced in such circumstances, they don't really care. If you saw a kid in the street, you probably want to help him. And in those days, there was so many children. They basically, like I say, they used to put them in a lorry and then go and dump them. That's the way the British government dealt with it. And so what kind of a life would my father have had? I wish I'd talked to him just to find out. But then even he probably was in survival mode. But it's the way he used to beat us that you just, he was not like a normal person that, you know, you hit someone and then you see like, oh, there's something there. There was nothing there. It was like a robot, basically. And that makes sense now when I read about how we develop empathy. We develop empathy by receiving it. If you get no nurture, the higher brain does not develop. You do not have empathy. Wow. Thank you for sharing that, Janvi. Nikki, you have your hand up. So my question is about your work as a storyteller, because you're every day, you're a comedian, and that's your storytelling tool. What was it like writing this story? Did you have to fight against the comedian in you to have these moments of levity? His, you're going back to something really traumatic. So was there, you know, a struggle between your comedic voice, which is a way of processing trauma, and the voice that had to tell this story? And how did you overcome that, if at all? I just wanted to put out my pain. So I wasn't thinking I'm writing a show. I did write a show about it. And that was very difficult. Because someone when like I was saying, when I came from my father's funeral, I was feeling properly upset. And someone uh, he's kind of my comedy mentor, he said to me, turn it into a show. 
And I was like, I can't even talk about this stuff without crying. How am I going to stand in front of an audience and turn it into a comedy show? So I found that to be really difficult. But with my book, I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to make anybody laugh. I just wanted to tell my story. So I was aware that I had the freedom with a book to go wherever. You could go dark and people are okay with that. But with a comedy show, the moment you start to go dark, it's really difficult to bring them out of it. And to be fair to people coming to watch comedy shows, sometimes they're coming because they've got maybe trauma or misery in their lives and they want to be uplifted. And then I take them to even a darker place than they came from. So that can be quite difficult. But with the book, I had the liberty to just let it be. Mm, Thank you. Any other questions? Anita, go for it. How did your husband respond to what you discovered when you were doing your research? It was strange because I feel that he saw the pain and he felt that he somehow he had to take responsibility and it wasn't him that did it. It's as though that he was to take ownership of that and he couldn't. And I don't think he himself is able to process what happened in Kenya. He can't process it. And so he hasn't visited it. And again, this is a journey that someone has to take by themselves when they're ready mentally, because it's so much, it's a lot. So he hasn't really come out and said anything about it. And that upset me to begin with. But then I realized it's difficult to process. You know, when we met, we were just madly in love and just insanely happy. And then you realize your people did this to her people. It's hard. It must be just as hard for him as it is for me because the decisions that are made are made by governments and governments that are quite callous, governments that don't actually see us as human. But he's my husband, my children are half English. So he is human and he's very good as a dad. It's a journey for him to take. And I don't know that he's able to confront it because sometimes people cannot compute such horrific stuff being done in their name. And I just wanted to express how I have nothing but admiration for you. And I think there's a lot of power in um, forgiveness. And thank you so much. From strength to strength. Thank you. I think even sometimes you look at the worst people on earth, there's probably a story why they are the way they are. That's the one thing that I learned. Um, and I, I don't think I could have learned to live with all the anger that consumed me. Thanks, Shaza. Sandra, I know you were very excited to meet Jambi. Did you have a question? Because I want to make sure we get it in. Did you ever grieve for your dad? Or if you have not, or if you have, how long has that process taken? I've been asking myself about this whole thing. When I was writing the book, the whole time I was grieving, I was thinking, God, this is exhausting now because I'll be writing and I'll be crying and then I'll come back and write, and then I'll be crying. That went on for a really long time. And then my mom dies. I find that I haven't grieved for my mother. I don't know why. Possibly because I knew she was dying over all the period that we used to sit and talk and talk and talk for ages. And I don't know whether that was my long goodbye to my mother, that I haven't been able to feel like I grieved in the way that I thought I would. So I spent so long crying about it that I haven't been able to grieve for her in the way that I thought I would. We are very complex humans. 
you know, but I was so sad about my mother's life and so sad about my father's life for so long. And we would talk through it and through it and through it. I think maybe she was just counseling me to be okay after she's gone. But definitely moaned more after my father died than after my mom died, which is weird. My question was because I had recently uh, lost my father. And uh, I think, I'm sorry, I get emotional about this. So, and I think this is it because of all the questions that you could never have asked and you never had the chance to mm-hmm. talk about and have the answers to them. Yes, I think this is why it takes a lot, a lot longer because we're always imagining what could have happened, what mm-hmm. I could have said to my dad, what, you know, what dad could have said to you, what you could have thought about. Mm-hmm. And that's always going to be there. I think in the back of our minds, that's going to be there. Yeah. I'm so sorry for your loss. Yes, I'm so sorry, sorry for your loss. It, it brings out so so much you know when your parent dies and Mm -hmm. because as a child of someone you're always a child until they go and suddenly you're alone it doesn't matter how old you are suddenly they're gone and Mm -hmm. it's Mm -hmm. yeah it's quite a difficult one so I'm so sorry to hear that you lost your dad yeah Yeah, sorry for your loss Sandra I did want to end on I hope what would be a lighter question to bring the mood up on this fine Sunday. Jambi, I would love to know if there was a moment in the book that was joyful, a memory that you pulled that you actually really enjoyed bringing back up whilst you were writing. Well, actually, although there's a lot of harrowing stuff in it, writing about us kids and living in Riyadh, you don't just understand how beautiful that place is. So for me, it was like as though I was there daily, hearing the sounds, the smell, the, seeing the scenery and everything. So for me, it was just like being back there, except, you know, the place that I have missed for so long, just seeing the color of the soil and just everything. And also thinking about the way we used to go to church and it take us ages. We'll be messing around going to church and ringing these people. <laughs> We when we got the telephone. Oh yeah, I love that story. And uh, you just ring anyone, and if a kid answers, then you're like you you chat for ages and ages and ages. And the fact that my father never knew where the huge bill was coming from because the phone was locked. So all of that mischief. There were moments, especially when my father was in Kampala. It was idyllic. It really was. It's astonishingly beautiful. It just felt so freeing and yet when he came back it's like as though he brought a cloud with him so yeah it was good to go back to those times when we used to do wrestling my brothers and I they would be wrestling and I'll be the referee and all of that yeah so it was good to revisit all those great times yeah wonderful thank you so much Danby this has been phenomenal and honestly just thank you everyone for sharing in this discussion because it was definitely a book that has touched us in so many different ways. I'm very grateful because you're reading my story and that means a lot to me. You're hearing me. Now you know about my grandmother, you know about my mother. And that is important, really important to me. It makes me feel so happy that you know of my grandma, that you know of Maito, you now know them. And to me, that gives me so much joy. We have come to the end of the show. Wow, what a story and what a discussion. 
I am so grateful to Jambi for sharing the space with us today. It has truly been emotional and inspiring and just moving without a doubt. Are you ready to come along and join in the discussion? You can become an audio bookworm. And yes, that does include if you've read and not listened to the book. Our next event is on Sunday, the 25th of April at 4pm, where we'll be discussing Love in Colour by Bolu Babalola. You can register at contentisqueen.org forward slash ABC5 and find everything you need in the show notes. If you can't bear to wait a month for your next audiobook fix, check out You Heard It Here First, a recommendation show that helps you find a new audiobook, podcast or drama to listen to on Audible. You can subscribe and listen to it on your favorite podcast player. Thank you to all of our excellent audio bookworms this week and our special guest, Jambi McGrath. This was a Content is Queen production, hosted by Imriel Morgan, produced by Amber Miller and Imriel Morgan. The clips used are from Through the Leopard's Gaze, courtesy of Audible and Jacaranda Books. The music and sound effects are sourced from Epidemic Sound. Until next time, see you soon. See you soon.